Well, hey, uh, good morning, Life Point Online. Uh, good to be with you. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor at our Delaware campus, and we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. You can open a physical Bible or turn on your digital one, or <clears throat> we'll also have it uh, on the screens for you as well. We've, uh, we've been in a series we've been calling The Ascent. We're in week three now. And uh, the big idea as we've looked through sort of these mountaintop experiences in the scriptures, the big idea of the series is that God's purpose for us is established in his provision for us. All throughout the Bible, we see that God has called uh, his people, us, right, to himself. He's chosen a people for himself. And then he says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to send you out into the world to represent me to the world. Uh, and give you what's called in the New Testament, the ministry of reconciliation. Go tell people what Christ has done. Go make disciples of all nations. And what we see throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that God is constantly, consistently providing for his people the things they need in order to do what he's called them and what he's commanded them to do. And it's true for us today. God has ultimately provided his son our Savior and our substitute, to wash us clean, to give us a new relationship with God. And he's provided us his Holy Spirit, our advocate and helper to empower us to live out the mission of God. We've looked at two of these mountains in the Old Testament. Today we're going to Mount Carmel. And first, I know some people may call it Mount Carmel. I just can't do it. Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18. We've looked at uh, Mount uh, Moriah uh, first, the episode between Abraham and Isaac, where God provides a substitute or a sacrifice for Isaac, foreshadowing Christ. And then 600 years later, we talked about this last week, Mount Sinai, the provision of the law through Moses, which does not save the people, but shows them over the centuries their need for a savior because they can't uphold or keep the law. And now today we're hundreds of years later again, Israel at this point in time here in 1 Kings 18 has split into two kingdoms in the north and in the south. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom just called Israel. Ahab, a guy named Ahab, is the king of Israel in the north. And he is known as the most wicked king to date, which is really saying something because they've had a, a string now of pretty bad kings. But he has deliberately disobeyed God. One of the worst things that he's done, he's, he's married a woman named Jezebel who hates God. She is not from Israel, and she does not worship the Lord of Israel. She worships and is devoted to these other gods, these idols. Uh, and in particular, as we're going to see today, uh, there's a fertility goddess named Asherah. Uh, Baal, the term Baal, sometimes is used as a general term for multiple gods. It gets a little confusing. But there's also a particular god, the god of lightning and the storm god, this, this Canaanite god that was referred to as Baal. And she worships Baal and Asherah. And not only that, but as she comes into Israel, she systematically persecutes and even murders the prophets of Yahweh, of God. She brings in idolatry and then tries to exterminate uh, the real true religion of Israel. And Ahab participates in this. He does nothing to stop it. Even though he's been, he, he's been born into the worship of Yahweh, he knows, he knows better. He names his kids after Yahweh, names that honor Yahweh, gives them, you know, faithful names, but then just goes along with this idolatry. 
and abdicates really his position as king to, to be able to, his responsibility to lead the people toward the Lord and instead participates in a system of leading the people away from the Lord. And so then you've got, that's on this side. On this side, you've got Elijah, the prophet, one of the few who is left. And in response to the wickedness of Israel, Elijah declares that God is going to send a drought on Israel, which is ironic because Baal is the storm god. He's supposed to control the rain. And Elijah is saying, no, God controls the rain. And he's going to turn it off. He's turning the faucet off on Israel. And it lasts for years. And so as the years go by, we're in year three. It's getting worse. Things are getting really bad in Israel. Ahab is pursuing Elijah wherever he goes. He wants to find him. He wants to kill him. And finally, in the third year of this drought, Elijah at the command of the Lord goes and he confronts Ahab directly and says, look, it's time for a showdown, right? Between me and you, but not really between you, you and me, as much as between, between Yahweh and between Baal, these false gods and the real God, we're gonna have a showdown. That's where we pick up in 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. I'm going to pause there. This is the first of five things I hope to highlight today in our text. Well, number one, Ahab's unrepentant heart. There's a lesson to be learned here. There are a lot of things going wrong inside of Ahab's life and heart, but perhaps one of the most fundamental is his unwillingness to humble himself even when he's confronted with his wrongdoing. Ahab has deliberately disobeyed God. He was set on the throne. He has a responsibility to lead the people toward the Lord. And he instead willingly participates in this system of killing God's prophets and persecuting the followers of the Lord. Leads the nation astray. And as Elijah comes to him, did you notice he blames Elijah for that? It's like, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah's like, man, I'm not the one who created this. Yes, God is the one who has declared the drought and he's done that through me, but it's in response to your disobedience, your ignoring of the commandments of the Lord. And as Ahab, I know that sounds kind of harsh, right? Elijah's like, dude, this is your fault. But it's actually a grace to Ahab in some ways because Elijah is clearly confronting him with his sin and giving him an opportunity to repent. It makes me think about uh, 150 years earlier, King David. David, after making a, ser a series of just terrible, sinful decisions. I, I, I would say a series of terrible mistakes, but they're, more than, they're not just mistakes. That's too, that's too nice. Like, he commits adultery, abuses his power, murders a man, steals his wife, lies to cover the whole thing up. Like, it's a terrible abuse of power. And you're like, why is, I'm talking about the David and Bathsheba incident, if you're familiar with that. And you're like, why is David called a man after God's own heart when he did those things? It's certainly not because he's flawless. It's certainly not because he didn't sin. He majorly sinned. Why is he called a man after God's own heart? At least in part, it's because of the way he humbles himself. When, when Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him, says, David, right, you did this. David basically says, you're right, and I have no excuse. David, what he says is, he says, I've sinned before the Lord. And he ends up penning, Psalm writing, Psalm 51, 
If you're familiar with that psalm, right, he comes to the Lord and says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I've sinned before you and you alone, O Lord, right? My sin is grievous. <laughs> and he says, Lord, here's my broken and contrite spirit. I know that you won't despise that. That's my sacrifice to you, right? My broken and contrite spirit. David humbles himself and repents. And that's why he's called a man after God's own heart. Here, Elijah confronts Ahab directly. This drought is a result of your disobedience, Ahab. And Ahab has an opportunity to humble himself and say, you're right. What do I need to do to make it right, to change? And instead, he does not. Let me just bring this to a personal level here. Some of us, we've walked away from God blatantly, disregarded his word, ignored Jesus, walked down our own path, and it has wrecked your life and in some cases, the lives of those around you. And I just want to say to you and remind you today, God is willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive you. He has provided his son, Jesus, in your place as a sacrifice for your sin. God, your, the punishment you deserved, God placed it on Jesus for you. He is willing to forgive you. But it does require that you humble yourself and you ask for that forgiveness and receive it by faith in Christ. You can't keep walking in defensiveness or rationalizing or justifying or refusing to humble yourself before the Lord. And some of us, you can see this if you're honest with yourself. Anytime anyone confronts you about anything and you know you're wrong, it's defensiveness. It's rationalizing why you did what you did or justifying why you did what you did. Or sometimes, and I've seen this, right? Like you confront, and someone confronts you and you're like, initially, I'm sorry. And then it's, but, but here's, you know, here's what you did wrong. <laughs> or you could have been nicer about that. Morgan and I have had to work through that at times in our marriage where she's come to me and been like, hey, you know, can I lovingly point this out in your life? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. But you could have been nicer about like how you pointed out. It's like, Kale, <laughs> you're deflecting blame. That's wrong. Don't do that. Own it. But as long as you, me, we, as long as we continue in stubbornness and pride, and refuse to just say, you know what, <laughs> you're right. Like, I'm wrong. I I've sinned before the Lord. Lord, I need forgiveness. As long as we continue to blame shift and focus on other people's faults and failures, rather than saying, Lord, what do you want to show me here? I'm sorry, I've sinned, forgive me. Then there can't be any real change. Your circumstances might change, but you won't change as long as you continue to walk in that kind of stubbornness and pride. So I just, I plead with you, right? Ahab is a sad example here. As far as we know from the scriptures, he never repents. He never humbles himself and changes and asks the Lord to help him change. And his life is a tragic end. Don't be like that. Don't do that. Don't walk that path. Humble yourself. If today you hear the Lord's voice, humble yourself and say, Father, forgive me. If today or this week somebody comes into your life and they confront you with sin. Maybe they don't do it perfectly, but don't turn it back on them. Ask, Lord, is this, is this real? And if it is, if you sin, ask the Lord's forgiveness and receive it and be on the way to change. Let's look back at the text, verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather. This is Elijah speaking to Ahab. He says, now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. 
and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the second thing I want to point out, <clears throat> Elijah's boldness and faith. Let me ask this question, right? Elijah's boldness and faith. What possesses a man <laughs> to challenge the king and the queen who want to kill him and also challenge the entire religious establishment? I mean, you don't have to be a math major to see 850 versus one doesn't seem to be great odds. What is it that gives Elijah confidence to walk up that mountain and say, you meet me there with all 850 year prophets versus just me. And also I want you to bring all of Israel so they can watch. What, what gives him that faith and that boldness? It's the Lord. The boldness comes from his faith in the Lord where he's saying, man, God has called me to do this. This isn't me just making something up and saying, I'm gonna be positive and go do something that God hasn't told me to do. No, the Lord is leading in this. And so this is really a step in obedience. And when you walk in steps in obedience to what God has called you to do, I'm not saying it always works out the way you think it's gonna work out, but it will not fail. And we serve this same God. That's what gives him the boldness, right? As he knows behind those 850 prophets is a dead idol. But behind me is the living God. He's got faith in this really big, powerful God, and he's following his word. And I would say to us, guys, we serve the same God. And, and I think this is a challenge to us to think like, Lord, do we have that kind of faith and that kind of boldness? And again, I'm not talking about irrational positivity about you just choosing to do things and God hasn't directed. I'm talking about as we pursue the Lord, as we go out and we say, Lord, you told us to make disciples of all nations, starting in our own communities and working out from there, starting in my own backyard. Lord, I, give me the faith and the boldness to go have those conversations, to go invite others, to go pray big. I was reading a, a book this week um, by Joby Martin. We've, uh, Joby wrote this, this series in some ways is inspired uh, by that book, If the Tomb is Empty. The book is called If the Tomb is Empty. He's got a chapter on, on Mount Carmel. And one of the things he talks about is, is noticing Elijah's prayers <laughs> Like here in a moment, right? He not only walks up uh, that mountain to face off against 850 prophets, but he also, he's about to pray for fire to come down from heaven. And then after that, he prays seven times for rain to come. Lord, end a drought, like right now. <laughs> and he's like, he kind of pressed in, uh, Joby was pressing in on like, what do we pray for? And as I was reading that and thinking about this, to be honest, I was, I was convicted and inspired convicted on the one hand because I'm like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know that my prayers reflect the bigness of God. I don't know that there's enough boldness in some of the prayers that I've been praying, the tenacity, the, and, and it's not about me being a great prayer. It's about what my prayers reflect about what do I believe the Lord is going to do? Can I ask you to consider something? If someone had only your prayer life to look at in order to shape their view of God, I'm not saying that's a good thing necessarily, I'm just saying for the point of the thought exercise, if someone was like, I don't know who this God is or what he's the God of, and they just read your prayers, <laughs> and written down and got to read them, what would they say? What would they come away saying, man, this person is, this, this God is the God of based on what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've read. Would they come away saying, man, based on this person's prayers, this God is the God of everything. He's the God of resurrection. He's the creator of heaven and earth. 
He is the one who works miracles. He's the one who changes lives. He's the one who brings families back together and restores marriages and changes people from the inside out. He is God. He's the Lord of all. Or would they come away saying, it would appear based on their prayers that he is the God of traveling mercies and blessing food. And maybe not much more. And listen, I'm not saying those are bad things. I, like, I pray and ask for safety. I pray and ask for God's uh, mercies over us as we travel. I, I pray and ask God to bless our food. I don't think those things are wrong. But I don't think our prayer life should be limited in those ways. I think we should take a look at our hearts and our time in prayer and say, Lord, what I pray <clears throat> reflects in a lot of ways what I believe about what you can do. And I was convicted by that and also inspired to say, Let, Lord, how do you want me to pray bigger? I got to thinking about Easter weekend. We've got Good Friday services right on Friday, <clears throat> and then Easter Sunday we're meeting at multiple times and across all of our locations, and we will have, Lord willing, thousands of people join us that day. And here's what I was thinking about. We, we live in a time where even in spite of all the cultural change and, and much of our culture's turning away from the Lord, we still live at a time where people will come listen to someone talk about Jesus. Even if they're not a Christian, even if they're not interested necessarily in learning about Jesus, they'll still come and listen to someone talk for 25 minutes or 30 minutes about Jesus and listen to people sing about Jesus for the other 25 or 30 minutes just because someone invited them. And so as I think about Easter weekend, I, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna encourage us, like, let's go be bold and let's invite anyone and everyone. <laughs> and let's pray that God would do something awesome, that God will save people, that he will wash them clean of their sins, open blind eyes, that he'll change individuals and whole families. Let's pray that God would draw many unto himself. We've got 36 hours of prayer from Good Friday into uh, to Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. You can find that right now. If you go to the Life One Ohio app or at lpguest.com, you hit the events and registration tab. There's a section there, an event there that just says 36 hours of prayer. You can sign up for a slot. Let's pray together as a church that God would do something amazing. Can I just, I just want to lean into us in that way as we look at Elijah, as we read this and we see that boldness and that faith in prayer and action Let's look at our own lives and ask the question, Lord, are there some steps in faith that you want me to take in boldness and following you? I don't want to just play it safe and always be cautious. That's, that's a tendency for me. God, how do you want me to pray differently that reflects the bigness, the greatness of who you are? Let's look back here. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, and I want you to underline this phrase right here, this question, because it's really at the heart of the text. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Pick one. And the people did not answer him a word. Third thing I want to highlight, God calls us to wholehearted devotion. God calls his people to wholehearted devotion. And I want to say that, let me say that uh, in the, that's a, the positive sense. Let me say it maybe in the negative sense. If you are trying to follow Jesus and something else or someone else, then you really aren't following Jesus. You can't because you're going to be torn in two different directions. 
and it doesn't work. If you are trying to worship God while simultaneously worshiping at the altar of some other God, money, sex, power, approval, achievement, pleasure, self-expression, whatever it may be, then you're not worshiping God. Because again, you're being pulled in two different directions. And I've said it before, there's a throne in the heart of every person, and that throne is a one-seater, not a two-seater or a three-seater. It can't be multiple gods. It can't be multiple great loves. You'll be mastered by something in your life. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, he was talking in that context specifically about God and money. And he says, guys, one of these things is going to master your life. He says it this way, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you can't, can't have two trying to sit on that throne of one. You can't be pulled in both directions forever. And listen, sometimes I think, and this is how I hear this often in, in our culture, right, as I talk with people, is, is we have this idea that we can kind of incorporate Jesus into our lives. And so we, we have this thought of like, okay, to, to be a healthy person, a complete person, like, I, I got to have like a good diet and exercise. And, and these are all good things. Don't get me wrong. It's like, but, but dieting, exercise, romance, you know, family, and then I'll like, grab a little bit of Jesus and faith and kind of put that in a little church and faith and that'll, that'll be what makes me healthy and a good life. And I, the problem with that is we're like compartmentalizing Jesus and he's just kind of one little piece that we try. Let's add some spirituality into our lives and we'll make, and we think, I think in some ways we think that's sort of a new concept, but it's really what the Israelites are doing just in a different form and fashion. They're like, totally Yahweh, great. Yeah, love him. Uh, but if the rain's not coming, let's maybe worship Baal too and see if that works. If we need kiddos, right, we'll, we'll go to the, the Asherah poles, right? They would set up these poles, these trees, right? These sacred places that they would worship and we'll try the fertility goddess and see if that works. And so it's this idea of what, like, we can incorporate Yahweh into our lives and he can be like a piece of what makes the whole thing work. And Elijah's like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. One thing, one person, one great love will master your life. You'll dedicate yourself to that thing and everything else will be after that. And he's like, man, the covenant was what God did at Sinai, right? I am the Lord, your God. You'll have no other gods before me or besides me. He is worthy of it all. And so live your life for him. And the same is true for us. Listen, if you really believe, take a moment and think about this. If you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God who lived and died and then rose again, and he is what he says he is, he did what he said he did, that he died for your sin, and that your only hope of new life and relationship with God and eternity with him is through faith in Christ, then he's worthy of it all. Stop trying to incorporate him into your life as a piece of it and just give your whole life to him. It belongs to him anyway. Dedicate yourself to him. Say, Lord, man, I'm receiving the grace that you offer through faith, the forgiveness of my sins, and Jesus, you gave your life to me, so here's my life back to you. Stop trying to piecemeal it. Don't go limping between two opinions. Don't stop trying to follow Jesus and hold on to all these other things. Let him go. Dedicate your life to Christ and live everything under him. You're going to find that life lived for him and to him is better. It's what you were created for. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. 
But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. It's a little bit funny in some ways. The image of Baal was a bull, right? So the way Elijah has sort of set this up, the way the Lord's doing this through Elijah, it's, I mean, it's great, right? He's like, let's sacrifice bulls, right? The image of your God. They're in a territory that some scholars say this is kind of like Baal's territory here at Mount Carmel. So the idea would be they're like, man, seems like all in favor of Baal. And Elijah is going to, really the Lord through Elijah is just going to smash that notion to show them the futility of worshiping this dead God. He says, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Again, Baal is the lightning God. So this idea of sending some lightning down, some fire down, like should be no problem. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going to the bathroom or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, there's a reason Elijah is mocking them. Again, this whole thing is about showing the people the futility of looking after this God to provide you with something that the Lord, the God, has already promised you, right? So he's not mocking just to be mean. I'll come back to that here in a moment. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom. They cried aloud and cut themselves, bruised themselves, hurt themselves after their custom with swords and lances cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That just means the time of offering the sacrifice. And there was no, but there was no voice. Silence. No one answered. No one paid attention. Again, the idea here is showing just the deadness and futility of looking to Baal against the living, the power of the living God. And so then verse 30, it's Elijah's turn. And I just love the juxtaposition, the, the, the contrast. You got a bunch of guys shouting and dancing and hurting themselves. It's, it's a lot of pomp and spectacle because like there's nothing there. <laughs> no one answers. And then you've got Elijah who just looks at the people. Verse 30, Elijah said to, the, to all the people, just come near to me. And I imagine the scene being rather quiet. I'll give you the summary of the next few verses. He repairs the altar of the Lord. He takes 12 stones reminding the people of their history, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he prepares the bowl and has them soak it with water three different times, which is just awesome, right? Like it's a horrible drought. And he's like, look, the God, God can provide more. Get me all the water that we have, throw it on this bowl to remind you God is going to be the one who provides. And also to show you there is, uh, there's no way that I can make this up. This is no trick. I want to, I want to leave no doubt about what's to happen here. So he soaks the whole thing three times. And then verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah and the the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord. And I want you to underline, circle verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That they may know. Answer me so that they will know that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That's just awesome. I don't know how you burn dust, but the Lord does, right? And he licks up, I mean, leaves no doubt. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slaughtered them there. Now, I don't have time to dig in all into that last part. Uh, You may hear that and go, that sounds terrible. Why would he do that? That seems unmerciful. Uh, We we have to remember, just one short thing on that. We have to remember, um, at this time, at this place in Israel, under their covenant with the Lord, the prophets of Baal committed basically national treason. This was laid out in the law. That priests and prophets who led the people away from God, that is an act of treason against Yahweh. Their constitution started with, I am the Lord your God, and you'll have no other gods before me. So these men, uh, they have committed treason against the nation, against ultimately the Lord, and it's an offense punishable by death. And so Elijah has that uh, death sentence carried out right then and there. But here's the fourth thing I want to point out. God moves in mighty ways so that we might know him. God moves in mighty ways so that we might know him. Did you catch? Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know you. We've been saying all through this series, God provides for us so that we understand our purpose in him. And he also provides for us so that we have relationship with him. In fact, that's where we discover that purpose is as we step into relationship with the God of the universe and then he sends us out on mission. But God does these things. He moves so mightily. He doesn't send the fire down just for a light show or to scare the people. He sends the fire down. Elijah is saying, God, move here so that your people can see who you are. And they can see that Baal is no God at all. And they can see that you are the living God. God desires relationship with his people. That's why Elijah is also mocking, right? He's not, he's not just... I, think, I don't think he's just reveling in the fact that no one's answering. He's trying to show the people the utter stupidity of looking to idols to provide you with what God has already promised you. He wants this to be no doubt. The Lord is Lord. He is God. And Baal is not. These idols you're looking to satisfy you, they will fail you every time. So trust the Lord and him alone. And so God moves here and still does today. It's the same for you and me. When God moves he answers prayer. And look, sometimes he moves in ways that we don't understand and we sometimes don't even like necessarily on the front end. But when he moves, when he acts, when he answers prayer, when he moves in our, he does it so that we might know him and trust him and be in relationship with him and see him for who he is. Fifth and final thing. Mount Carmel, Carmel, anticipates Calvary. Carmel anticipates Calvary. This moment here at Mount Carmel points us forward to that mountain centuries later, the Mount of Calvary where Christ gives his life in in at least two ways. One, in the fact that what happens here at Mount Carmel is ultimately incomplete. 
You say, how is it incomplete, Kale? So, so here's, what's, here's what's so sad about what happens here. It's this great victory. And the people are like, we, the Lord is God. And then pretty soon after, the people have turned away again. Their hearts have not changed from the inside out. Elijah, after this great victory, very next chapter, he's fleeing from Jezebel because Jezebel says, I'm going to come kill you. And he turns away and runs in fear. And so there's this sense, you read Mount Carmel and you're like, this is awesome. And then right after you're like, but it doesn't seem to have solved everything. And the answer is no, it doesn't. It's anticipating, predicting, looking forward to the day where God would provide a, a better provision to a better mountain, to, to a new and better covenant where God would provide not just fire, but his own son on the cross, paying for your sin and mine to change us from the inside out. Secondly, and oddly enough, the prophets of Baal. I, I look at there and I, and I see echoes or foreshadowings of Calvary, like how in the world? Listen, they start in the morning and until noon and then into the Afternoon, evening, they shout, they dance, they eventually wound themselves. They cut themselves and you catch, right? They take swords and spears and they cut themselves until the blood flows. But no one answers. It's just silence. Centuries later on Calvary, the Son of God would be crucified in the morning and through noon and into the evening and he was wounded. Isaiah tells us, right, that he was marred beyond human recognition nails through his hands and feet, thorns in his head, and then the spear in his side until the blood flowed. And he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. But despite some of these parallels, we see the beautiful and wonderful differences. Jesus isn't doing these things, right? Mutilating himself to try to rouse a dead God. He's allowing these things to be done to himself by sinful people in obedience to the Father's plan so that those sinners might be forgiven. The plan is that the Son would be crushed and broken and bruised so that you and I might be healed. And heaven was silent at Jesus' cry, not because there was no one there to listen, but because the living God, the Father, was turning his face away. And the sin of man was being placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And the wrath of God against our sin, your wrongdoing and mine, was falling on him. And because heaven was silent at that moment, we know now because of the resurrection through faith in Jesus that when we cry out, God answers. Heaven was silent then, but when we cry out in faith, we know that the Lord answers. Christ, our Substitute. Carmel anticipates Calvary, the better sacrifice, the new and the better covenant. And I'll close with just this final encouragement or admonition. I, <clears throat> I would say, brother, sister in Christ, guest just listening in, if you are running after an idol right now, if today you are worshiping at the altar of some other God, money, sex, power, approval, self-expression, pleasure, achievement, whatever it is, I promise you, like the prophets of Baal, Baal found out, that thing will ultimately fail you. It will not give you what you are looking for, not ultimately. And along the way, 
likely it will bruise you and destroy you. You're going to find along the way, right? It just demands more and more of you. You you worship at the altar of pornography and sexual pleasure and ultimately will enslave you and dehumanize you. You worship at the altar of money, it will never be enough. You will always feel the need for more or you will always be in fear of losing what you have. You worship at the altar of work, achievement, approval, and you will always feel like you have to work harder, perform more, do more, never sure if it's enough, always needing more validation from others. You worship at the altar of pleasure, self-expression. Once again, it's never enough. You'll always be looking for the next high, the next moment of pleasure, and you will be broken and bruised by the demands of that idol, and ultimately it will let you down, and it leads to death. But the gospel is so much different. It's so different. The gospel is the good news that there is one God and one alone who doesn't shout down at you and me and say, do more, shout louder, perform more, but instead looks down at us and says, rest, for it is finished. You don't have to cut and bruise yourself because my son was broken and bruised in your place. You don't have to try to do more religious activity so that you'll that I'll hear you. My son, I gave my son and demonstrated my love for you in giving him, and he gave his life for you. He is the sacrifice in your place, and he said, it's finished. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay because he paid it all, and you're set free because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and the victory is his. And so I would say to you, if you're listening today and you've never taken that step, you are chasing after that idol today and you know it. Humble yourself today. Repent, turn from it and trust Jesus, the new and better sacrifice. Step into that relationship with God today through Christ. And if today you know these things, but you feel torn, trying to follow the Lord while trying to hold on to these things today. Stop limping between two opinions. Let it go and follow him wholeheartedly. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are real and alive, that you hear us when we pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And Jesus, that you are our final, better, once and for all sacrifice and substitute. God, I pray for any who are listening right now, God, who feel torn, who are waffling back and forth. God, I pray that today would be the day where they commit wholeheartedly to following you and that they will let go of the pursuit of those idols today. And God, I pray for the person today who's hearing this for the first time and who's deciding right now whether they will humble themselves and trust you with their lives. God, I pray that you would speak to them and you would lead them. God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.